0: Today we have two scripture passages. The first can be found in Mark 1, 12 and 13. Please turn with me there if you would. The spirit immediately drove him, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Then the second passage can be found in Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up, By the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him.
1: this morning I hope you'll leave your Bibles open to the passage in Matthew, particularly this morning. We're actually going to continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, by turning over to a more detailed account that's found in Matthew. Uh, We aren't going to do this every time we run into a passage that's covered in the other Gospels, but we thought it was worthwhile to do so this morning uh, because of just the, the power of this particular passage, to call it to mind and see it sort of fleshed out more fully. The sermon series that we are in, that we began last week, is called On the Road with Jesus. There's a lot of movement throughout the whole of the Gospel of Mark. And you can see at the beginning of our passage, it begins with the words, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. There's a significant movement as Jesus moves from place to place this particular time into the wilderness. Last week, we considered the beginning of the Gospel, that the essence of the Gospel is this, at the beginning of Mark, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning and the essence of the gospel. Today, we consider a day in which the good news was preserved in the midst of the greatest attack upon a human soul in history. We're going to do that by turning over to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word We ask that you would speak to us by your word, that your spirit would help us to understand and apply what you give to us today. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is, what he's done, and what he's created and purchased for us. Pray that we would receive it with a great thanksgiving as we see your suffering and victory in this moment. In Matthew chapter 4. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the confirmation of the gospel account by four witnesses. And this morning, we're going to turn to Matthew to help us fill out the story of the accounts that we found over in Mark chapter 4. And what you're going to see is Mark chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 are actually found in the Matthew account at the beginning and end of it. So essentially what we have in Matthew is the fleshing out of what happens between these major declarations in Mark. We'll put it to you this way. Mark chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 says this, The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You see, they begin in the same place. And then Mark chapter 1 verse 13 says, And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. At the end of the episode, Matthew chapter 4, 4, verse 11, the end of the episode in Matthew, says this, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So we have this sort of a bookends for the account in Mark that is then fleshed out into the book of Matthew. The The gospel speaks with a unified voice. I think of it like this. Imagine four friends sitting together in a room, sharing with a fifth friend the account of their shared experience. These friends are together, they're in the room, and they're telling someone this story, but they keep interrupting each other to fill in the account more fully with various helpful and compelling details, and even to maybe bring a little bit of an emphasis in each one of the Gospel accounts, where the emphasis in Mark is a movement, an on the road with Jesus. The emphasis in Matthew is a fuller telling of many of the accounts. And so we're going to pay attention to that this morning. We're gonna do so by doing what we always do. We're gonna pay attention to the words that are there. Over here in Matthew chapter four, the words that we find at the beginning of the account are this, then Jesus was led by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, led by the Spirit. Now that's an interesting way to begin this really incredible trial of an account in the life of Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry. One of the things that we see throughout the Gospels is the Spirit is at an active agent throughout all of the account of the Gospels. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit active Throughout The Spirit that the Son sends to be with His disciples, the, the Spirit that Jesus sends to, to dwell with the disciples after He leaves, to ascend to be with the Father, is the same Spirit that was with Jesus during the course of the whole of His ministry. The Spirit is active even in this account in Matthew chapter 4. Now what does it say that the Spirit does? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus was led into the wilderness. That's important. The context of the temptation is important to, for us to see because we ought to compare this to the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden, in their temptation. Both Adam and Eve and Jesus were tested and they were tested by the temptation of Satan. But compare the conditions and the context of the tests. Adam and Eve were a newly, in a newly minted creation. Perfect, fed by every tree in the garden, walking with the companion that God had given to them to walk with in the garden. Now compare that luscious setting of the first temptation with the wilderness setting. And friends, there, you can't go much further into a wilderness than to be in the wilderness to which Jesus was sent. And he was sent there to fast in that wilderness. God had given to Adam and Eve to eat of every tree that was in the garden except for this, just this one. But Jesus was sent into the wilderness to fast. Jesus is on a ragged deserted edge of creation, and his body is literally wracked by 40 days of fasting alone in the wilderness. You get the context. Now, here's the thing. I want you to get the context, not just for your mind, not just so you can kind of understand the story, but you, so that you can know what your Savior endured. We talk a lot about Jesus' enduring in the cross that is not the only thing that he endured for you. That we can appreciate, that we can grow in a love and appreciation for the suffering of Jesus in his temptation. You tell me whose human frame passes the test on that day. And I can tell you only Jesus. Now, how do we know that Jesus had a human frame? How do we know that he suffered in this wilderness? How do we know that it wasn't a mere illusion, that yes, Jesus is the divine one, so he he doesn't suffer in his human frame. He's God. How can God suffer? We believe, we're taught by the Scriptures, that Jesus had not only his divine nature, but also his human nature. He really was actually born as a child, And he actually grew, and he actually ate, and he actually drank. We're told that he grew in wisdom and in stature. He had a body that grew. And at this age, on this day, his body went out into the wilderness. And his body fasted for 40 days. And we're told in verse 2, if we're paying attention to the words that are there, we're told that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was... Hungry. How do we know that Jesus had a human frame? He was hungry. Is there any more clear statement that Jesus' humanity was real than that after fasting for 40 days, he was hungry? Jesus, the God man. Throughout the Gospel accounts, it's clear that Jesus was fully human. He becomes hungry, he becomes Tired, He needs to stop walking and rest. He needs to step away from people and find a little respite from the crowds. All of these things are recorded for us because Jesus took on flesh. Jesus is truly God in the flesh, and it's in this human nature that he was pushed to the ragged edge on that day. Do you appreciate that about your Redeemer? Now by the end of the episode, certainly Satan could lodge an accusation against Jesus. Certainly Satan could not lodge an accusation against Jesus like he did with Job, Job chapter one, verses nine through 10. When Job was tested, here's the circumstance: Job, did Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge? around him, and his house, and all that he has on every side. That's the situation into which Satan's temptation comes for Job. Just like the situation into which Satan comes for Adam and Eve was a lush garden with full bellies. But you can make no argument that there was some sort of hedge of protection around Jesus in the wilderness after 30 day, 40 days, hungry, hungry, "...exhausted and alone to be tempted." If anyone would fail on that day, right? He would be on that day. And he was sent there to be tempted. Another word for the word tempted, it's a confusing word because it can also mean and ought to also mean tested. Here, Satan is clearly in the business of tempting Jesus, just as he was in the business with Adam and Eve and with Job of tempting those individuals. But God is not in the tempting business, but he is in the testing Business And there is a clear distinction. Look at James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. A good passage to write in your Bibles in the margin there in Matthew chapter 4. In James 1, 13 and 14, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God does, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's fascinating. It tells us everything that we need to know about temptation, really. What is is Satan doing? Because he is the tempter. What is he doing? He's luring and enticing, looking to find a a hook in our desire for his temptation. When he, he sent out that lure, in Adam and Eve, he found a place for that hook to find root and pulled them into sin. What's Satan going to find in the God-man? What is he going to find in Jesus on his ragged edge? Note that God does not tempt Jesus. Just as was true with Job, God is simply bringing Jesus to a place where, listen, what is true of him would be revealed. God is not looking to create sin in Adam, Eve, Eve. Job or Jesus. He's revealing their desire. Not enticing into sin. He really was tempted. The hook was sent out and looking for a place to be set. Jesus really was tempted. It wasn't some sort of illusion. Again, as though Jesus, being divine in nature, could not have sinned in the flesh. That is an error. It's not as though temptation simply bounced off of him like he were some sort of superhero. No, were Jesus in his human nature, listen, if Jesus in his human nature were not to rely upon the Spirit and the Word, he would have sinned. How do we know that? Because he was a man. Because he had a human nature. And the human nature to live apart from sin must rely on God. This isn't a merely theoretical question. It's essential to the work of Jesus as our righteous Redeemer. He was actually righteous in the face of temptations like you and I and our forerunners, Adam and Eve. He really was fully human. We know the temptation was real, first of all, because Jesus is not only divine, but he is also human. Verse 2 After fasting for 40 days, he was hungry. Is there any more clear statement of Jesus' humanity than that? If, if he would not have eaten, what would have happened to Jesus on that day? He would have starved, because he's human. He's not some sort of superhero who doesn't need food. He would have starved to death. If he would not have slept, he would have died of exhaustion. If he would have fallen off a cliff as Satan tempts him, he would have fallen and died. If he would have hung on a Roman cross with nails in his hands strapped up there, he would have suffocated and died because Jesus was a man. He really was human with all of a human's finite frame but this. He did not sin. The second way that we know that Jesus really was tempted was because Adam did sin Jesus came to do what Adam and Eve did not do. Jesus came to succeed at the test, remain righteous, dependent upon God, to establish a new people where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus came to become for us what our first parents failed to do. It's similar to asking, could Adam and Eve have not sinned? And the answer is yes if they would have remained reliant upon the word of God, if they would have trusted in his word on that day, they would not have sinned, but they did not. They trusted the tempter. Adam and Eve trusted themselves, their own hearts, and their desire on their own that they might live, and they sinned. The bottom line is this. Adam failed to trust the word. Jesus didn't. Adam sinned. Jesus didn't. You and I share a common ancestry. You and I share Adam and Eve as our first parents. Every single one of us. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have a new ancestor, a new humanity. Where Adam and Eve failed the test, Jesus Passed the test, and he did this as he did everything else in order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, who was tempted in the wilderness, is our righteousness. Friends, get that in you. Get that in you, not only here, but here and here as we worship the Lord. You are our righteousness because you passed the test. You are perfectly righteous in the face of every temptation. Even at the ragged edge of humanity, we worship the Lord. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look briefly for just a moment at each one of the temptations, and we will see amazing things as we do so. Look at verse 3 with me. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, But he answered them, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Look at the way that the tempter goes at Jesus. He goes at Jesus with a conditional, if, if you are the son of God. Now this is huge. It is the key issue at hand. Is God's word true? Matthew wants us to see what God had said just verses before What was Jesus meditating upon? Look at chapter three in the last verse. God's words from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what's the first thing Satan says to Jesus? Well, if, if you're the son of God. What was Jesus meditating on for 40 days before the tempter comes? While he's getting increasingly hungry and alone. I am my Father's beloved Son. Jesus, at the very bottom of human experience, accept this one thing. He had the words, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, ringing in his ears. It's by this word that he was sustained the creature comforts of the Son of God are none other than God himself. What if that was true of us? What if our creature comforts, as a creature, what if our creature
0: comfort was the creator? remain so throughout the whole of the life of Jesus. What you If if you remember back in chapter 3 of Genesis
1: Satan's words, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And even if God isn't lying, God isn't good. To Adam and Eve, if your creator won't give you all good things, just take it for yourself. God's words to Jesus, Satan's words to Jesus, look at you, son of God, grab a butt. It's the same play. What if our every answer to our every temptation was, it is written? What if that's the first thing that came to our mind. When the hook goes out to find some desire in our heart and soul, all that it hooks is it is written. For the word was in us. Now I know that many of you can pass Bible quizzes. I know many of you have read the Bible a good bit. And if we had a sword drill, some of you are like, oh, you know all the right answers. But those sort of tests are not ultimately, ultimately, the important ones. Even Eve passed the simple pop quiz that Satan gave her. Did God really say? Yep, he sure did. He's really serious about it, too. She even embellishes a bit of what he said. But when the actual temptation to eat comes, all sense of God's authority, all sense of God's command, and listen, all sense of God's goodness disappears, even though she can pass a Bible pop quiz. What we need is not only to know what God said, what we need is the faith to believe that God is good. Friends, this is the testimony of the scriptures throughout. Man, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they knew what God said. Listen to this. They knew it better than you. They know it better than me. But did they believe that God was good? And are only sufficient provision Do we? Jesus' words, when he goes right at Jesus, with what right at Satan, with it is written, a counterattack is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live. Now, I need to pause there because I've said it many times. The essence of sin is a declaration, the shaking of the fist in the air on my own, I can live. And Jesus' first words to counter sin are, man shall not live. Jesus begins his defense at the root of sin. He hearkens to the creator's own warning against sin. You will surely die. Man doesn't live apart from God's word. We surely die apart from his command and a clinging to his goodness. Apart from God, outside of that command, apart from his generous provision, man shall not live. It's the essence of the scripture that Jesus quotes. Friends, this is not about bread. This is about a trust, a faith, in the good provision of the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, he says, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now here's the deal. God's word doesn't fill hungry bellies. That's not what the creator means because that's not the way that God created bellies to work. They're supposed to have bread and other good foods. God's word doesn't fill hungry bellies. But there is no life outside of God's word, no matter what bread or fruit for Adam and Eve, you manage to stuff your mouth with. Your mouth is full, your belly is full, but there's no life. This is what Jesus is remembering from God's word. I can stuff my face with whatever creature comforts I may need, but there's no life apart from God and his word. Jesus In his humanity and obedience in this temptation was content to live the life that God had given him and the life that the Spirit had led him to in the wilderness was a life of not eating for 40 days. And he would wait until that word was lifted. Man shall not live. Man shall live, Jesus is saying, by the word of God and there alone will he be full. If God has Jesus in the wilderness with no food in sight, that's precisely where Jesus is going to remain until God's word tells him otherwise. There's no life anywhere else. (laughs) Why did Adam and Eve not look around at the garden and believe that God's word Even his word that included a command, his generous word was good and sufficient for life. The answer is the same reason for me why Satan's hook so so often finds root that there is something in me that believes that God's word is sufficient. His command is not good and I can fill my mouth and my belly some other way. How could there ever be life In any of my sin, I ought to ask, where the creator himself refuses to walk. In this first temptation, we find our Savior meditating on the word of God, sustained not by what he eats, not by what he can grab with his own hands, and that's important, not what he can grab with his own hands, but rather he is sustained by what the Lord provides by the wisdom of his word, and the Lord is not providing through Satan on that day. And so he waits the first temptation. We turn to the second, verse five. Look at it with me. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written two things. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What does he respond with? When when temptation comes, what are Jesus' first thoughts? It is written. You see him depending upon the word of the Lord. The devil took him to the holy city. It's interesting that Satan wants to take Jesus to Jerusalem, put his life at risk, and see him rescued. Isn't that interesting? This reminds me of the temptations and the accusations lobbed at Jesus on the cross. He's hanging there. His life is imminently at risk. What do they say? Matthew chapter 27. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. It's a tragic reality that so often the temptations of Satan come out of the mouth of Of men. And Jesus on that day also waits, walks in obedience. Jesus would go to the holy city and his life would be in danger and he would not call upon the holy angels, but he would give his life willingly. You see, this is the anti crucifixion. But Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If. If is how Satan begins the question. If you're the son of God, and Jesus' response again is, for it is written. Okay, okay. If you're the son of God, I'll give you that. And you take God at his word. Let's see how that goes. I'm gonna quote two scriptures to you, Jesus, and see if you really live by the word of God. Do you really believe the whole thing? And Jesus' words in verse seven, Jesus said to him, again, it is written. That's so important. Satan actually quoted God's word in those two quotations that he gives. But Jesus says, well, yeah, yeah. And again, it is written. There's more to be said on the topic, Satan. Jesus doesn't interpret scriptures based on circumstances, needs, or desires. You see, Satan's proof texting. He's going to find scriptures that would work well for Jesus on that day. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. You see, Jesus doesn't live by you know, some of the words that work well for my circumstances and desires today. Friends, it's why we have to read the whole counsel of Scriptures. It's why we have to be saturated, ongoing for the course of our lives in the whole of the Word so we don't read two Scriptures and say, check, but we check it. On the whole council, because again it is written and Jesus finds out how to walk. We so often do this. How much of preaching even today ignores the word even while it holds up some random scripture? Satan knows the Bible inside and out. The question is will we believe the full counsel of the word? Will we go there in dependence? Will we walk with a community that together can remember? Our hearts, our desires are not the interpreters of God's word. This is an important doctrine for us. The, interpret, the interpretation of God's word is found in God's word itself. That's where we find out what any particular scripture means, not how I would receive it today. It's like when I open up the Bible and I find some noun that just so happens to fit some noun I encountered in my day this week and think that that noun means what I encountered this week. No, my week is not God's Word's interpreter. God's Word interprets itself, and it tells me what my week means. The full counsel. This is why we must be sure to study particular Scriptures. That's what we're doing now, right? We're spending time in Mark. Today we're spending time in Matthew. We're going to look closely and carefully, even as we're reading the whole of the Scriptures. I would encourage us to do both of these things. Study close, particular, and intently even while reading thoroughly. It's one of the reasons why we've put together the Bible Together Journal with its History of Redemption plan, so that we can be reading the whole scope of scriptures, so that any particular story that we are studying can fit within the context of the whole. My my personal vision statement as a pastor, minister of the gospel, is that I would preach, teach, and come alongside of Christ's church with the full counsel of the word, not just my favorite little proof texts. And what Jesus finds when he goes to that word, he finds one that helps him to understand the other. Two, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yes, Jesus has given his, yes, the Lord has given his word. He has promised that he would protect Jesus. Not even his foot would strike a stone. Jesus has the very resources of heaven at his disposal. It's true. But Jesus comes, according to the will of God, as the servant of God. His purposes are not to flaunt his power. His purposes are to lay down his life in obedience to the Father. That's why Mark chapter 10 verse 45 is so important as really the central reality of the whole of the book of Mark. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus knows the purposes of God, the divine decrees of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's for that purpose that God has given his word, so he'll search the whole of the word to understand how that divine purpose would play out on this day in the wilderness, in the second temptation. He won't twist the word for the purposes that are outside of God's will as much as he would love to be anywhere than in the wilderness on that day. The, third, the second temptation. Now we turn to the third, beginning at verse eight. Look at it with me. Verse eight, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse eight tells us the devil showed him glory. Well, isn't that interesting, really? You are going to take the world and its kingdoms that Christ himself made and over which he himself reigns and you're going to show him their glory. genius. You think the kingdoms of the world are going to impress the Son of God? Let's see how that goes. All these I will give to you, Satan says. Now, Satan has two problems. How is Satan going to give kingdoms over which he has no lasting authority? You'll notice I put an adjective in there, lasting authority. That's important. He does have authority in this world. I think there's a caution here. There is truth to the claim that Satan holds sway over the kingdoms of the world, but it is a temporary reality. Satan is, according to Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air, or again in Ephesians, it gives reference to rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness. And Satan's saying, you see all that? All that authority that I have? I'll give you all of that glory, Satan's offer, though, is little more than a fading glory. There's some truth to the promise, but this is always so with idolatry. Do you know that? Whatever hook that Satan throws out for you, whatever purchase it finds in you, the best it can offer is a fading glory. There's some truth to the promise, but the glories of idolatry are at best Temporary. And the demands that make, that idolatry makes upon the human soul destroy it. Do we believe the word? The second problem with Satan's temptation is the requirement to fall down and worship. And that error in the third temptation proves fatal for Satan. This evil isn't just a sin of pride or lust that Jesus would want to rise up and experience all the glories of the kingdoms. The temptation that Jesus gives is in, that Satan gives to Jesus is an explicit call to idolatry. And Jesus' words, he says something before he says it is written. When he hears the call to idolatry, the words must come off his lips, be gone, mm-mm, We don't even have to talk anymore. Be gone. It is written. He puts an absolute end to it. There's no more conversation between Satan and Jesus on that day, though Satan would often come to Jesus through the lips of other tempters. It is written for a third time, Jesus rebukes Satan's lie with the truth of the word. Jesus worships the Lord his God. Now there's a mind bender for you. Do the math on it. Are you, are, you, are you working? How does Jesus worship the Lord? How does he who is the Lord worship God, the God-man? And he quotes this scripture because he does it and he intends to do it. And he won't cat- walk off into idolatry to do anything else but to the worship the Lord, his God. But it's not actually surprising to discover that God in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is absolutely devoted to the worship of, well, God. It should not surprise us that God is devoted to the display and worship of his own glory. It shouldn't surprise us, but we act so differently. We make such a big deal of ourselves. How often do we find ourselves as the context and circumstance of the scriptures when really that scripture is to hold up the glory of our God? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Worship the Lord, our God, alone. And the temptations of the devil are defeated by the word and by, listen, worship. Jesus is intent on the worship of God. And that puts an end to the conversation with temptation. Verse 11, simply, the devil left him. Friends, there is one and only one final way by which the devil must be defeated, and that is by the worship of God. We can commit ourselves to obedience. We can commit ourselves to memorization. We can commit ourselves to study and all manner of fortitude. We can commit ourselves to these things. But the final defeat of Satan's temptation will come when we turn to the Lord in worship. That's why our prayer of confession is not merely confession of our sin. It must be. But our confession is also a confession of the glory of the Redeemer. As we worship him, he's defeating our sin. Not only forgiving our sin, but defeating our sin. Matthew Hardy, he has a t-shirt. I've made reference to it before. It says, love God and do whatever you please. Well, isn't that interesting? It's a paraphrase of something that Augustine said, which is probably a paraphrase of something that Augustine himself said. The soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. We love what we love. We do what we love. We walk in light of what we find to be good. And the son treasured the father. And Satan is defeated. Verse 11, the angels came. They were ministering to him. Jesus is walking in the will of the Father in light of the full counsel of the Word, and he receives precisely what Satan had offered with twists and lies. He receives the comfort of heaven. This is a recurring theme throughout the Gospels. See it. If you go back over to Mark, you see it quickly. You see that the Father loves the Son, He loves the Son. He sends angels to announce the Son. He sends wise men from the east to bring gifts and worship to the Son. The greatest of all the line of the prophets, John the Baptist, is sent to prepare the way for the Son. The Spirit is sent to anoint the Son. And now angels serve the Son because the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves Satan's going down, friends. He flees in the midst of that perfect communion and worship into which you and I have been called. The fast is over. There are two things that I want us to see as we close. The first is Jesus is our perfect righteousness. Don't skip this. Again, we would be making the error of making ourselves the hero and the purpose of the story if we thought that this passage was three easy steps to avoid temptation. You go out into a wilderness and do what Jesus did. Try it. Friends, I haven't even fasted for 40 days in the luxury of my own house. This isn't three easy steps to avoid temptation. This is Jesus, our righteousness, who did what not even Adam and Eve in the lustrousness of creation could do. He passed the test. Our gift from our first parents, Adam and Eve, is unrighteousness. They have handed us down our sin nature, but Jesus secures a new nature, a new humanity for all who are in him. Not by our own performance, but by his. The first application of this passage is faith that Jesus alone is our righteousness. And once we understand this first application, then we are opened up the flower of the gift of the second application. The first is not a call to obedience. The first application is a call to faith and from the ground of faith, we take hold of Jesus by faith. We receive his righteousness by faith. He passed the test, and in that place, we have a new love, and Jesus becomes our new example. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they failed, and we've been following in their example ever since. Jesus passed the test. He alone is our righteousness. And we confess our failure week after week together. But he's shown us how we might nurture a new love. In Jesus, we find forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and a new way to live. I would offer three things by which we might follow after our head, our Savior, our righteousness, Jesus. The first is live not only to confess the word of God, but to confess the goodness of the word of God. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Don't confess the word, confess that the word is good. Second, we understand and interpret the word not according to our own hearts and desires. We don't find the truth of the word deep in our hearts, Do you actually believe that? You find the truth of the word in the context of the rest of the word. If you find yourself unsure of the meaning of the passage, don't search deep within, keep reading. Like again, and again, and again. Lord, show me the truth of your word in, you know, your word. Spirit, apply the truth of your word to my heart. By your word. Third, we worship God. How often, how many times have I told you when we come to this time of wrapping up the sermon and offering up application, how many times is worship the application point? Worship. The Lord, love the Lord. The Lord is good, he's beautiful, he's trustworthy. In him is life. By his word, we live and so worship him. And by worshiping the Lord, we are kept from much sin and death. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given to us a new Adam. But Jesus, we don't want to be in Adam no longer. We want to be rid of that sin nature, and we want Christ. And even that desire itself is a gift from God. Thank you for the Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for Jesus, for all that you have endured for us. Even the endurance taking on flesh and seeing that flesh suffer in the wilderness and on the cross and rise victorious. Ascend to the heavenly places from which you will come to judge and to redeem. God, our trust is in you. Lord, for the one here who is still shaking their fists and saying, on my own I can live, on my own I can live. And they've done their best to not even pay attention today. They've they've tried to let their minds be distracted, but Lord, I pray that your Spirit would not let them. And you would plant a new affection. You would plant faith, and that one would believe. If you would do this, it would be a miracle, and we would praise your name. Thank you, Lord, for keeping us. We pray all of these things in that great name. In the name of Jesus, our righteousness, we pray. Amen.